Our second reading is from Romans, chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this, ne- this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? The word of the Lord. Your God, your God, is too small. Or to put it another way, your God is not big enough. I actually am firmly a believer that you guys don't have a big enough belief in God. I don't care how long you've believed in God, what you actually think about him, your God is not big enough. How do I know this to be the case? I would ask this, have you ever in your life struggled with insecurity? with identity issues. If you're a believer in God, at the root of your insecurity and identity issue is that you doubt God's word. You doubt what the gospel says about you and instead listen to the voices in your own head, your own conscience, what your parents say about you, what culture says about you, and you don't believe God's word is true because your God is not big enough. How do I know that your God is not big enough? Because I would suggest that each of you has sinned at least once. And what is sin? Sin at its root is living, choosing, acting, willing without regard for God. It's acting in a given moment or over the course of your life as Lord of your own life, as your own God. And it's at its root also suggesting that you don't really believe God is holy or that God is judge. Every act of sin, every will of sin is an acknowledgement that your God is not big enough. 
How about another one? Has anyone in this room ever dealt with anxiety or worry or fear? Fear of anything, worry about anything, your health, your money. We currently live in the political climate where whoever is in power, the other half of the country is in deep, anxious fear of what that means for our country. What are we going to do? What's going to happen if for four years, eight years, this person is in charge? These are the people on the Supreme Court. What then? It's a lot of fear and anxiety that suggests God is not bigger. Many of you have kids, and you know what this is like, that anxiety and fear about your kids. You see them struggling academically or socially or athletically, and you worry about them in that moment. You worry about their future. What's this going to mean five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? You can get yourself worked up as a parent. But that anxiety is a belief internally that you must control the future. You must make plans for them. You must figure it out. And you've got to manage everything because if you don't, who will? It's the belief that we need to be in control and that God is not. Fear at its root means your God is not big enough. Romans 9 that we just had read is a part of a bigger section, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul is not giving us a treatise on the bigness of God, but he is answering questions related to it. Is God faithful? Is God just? Is God truly Lord of all creation, all of history, all of salvation, all of humanity? So we're gonna look at this and see how it unfolds with words of assurance and comfort as we see the bigness of God over all things. In Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, we start off with a portion we didn't read where Paul is identifying his, his heart of compassion for his kinsmen, his brothers, fellow Israelites. He says that, I, I am in great anguish. Why? I'm in great anguish for my fellow kinsmen, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, because by and large by Paul's day, they had rejected Jesus as, the, as God and Savior. And here was the problem that Paul had. Not only did he have great anguish, because these are his cousins, his brothers and sisters, the community he grew up with, but he has great anguish because if this is true, if God's chosen people rejected God, then what does that say for any of us as Christians, as believers in this God, as people who now trust in this God? If they reject God and God had promised and chosen them, is there any hope for any of us? And that's the question he begins with as he examines the, the issue of Israel's unbelief. And he says in verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now he puts this as a statement, but it's actually a question he's posing. If you look at the fact in, in Paul's day that most of Israel had rejected God and they were God's chosen people, what does this tell us about God's faithfulness? All those promises he made to Abraham and Moses and David, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through the prophets, the chosenness of this people, the raising up of the kings, the temple. It, is God faithful or has God failed? And of course the answer is no, God has not failed. And he says that God is faithful to his word, but the way that God was faithful was not as you assumed. 
God has called and continues to call people. We see this in verses six through nine. As Paul goes on to talk about, look, God's word came to Abraham and said to Sarah, you will have a son, and through your son, I will bring my promises. But the point that Paul is making here is that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Both were his sons, but only one was the son through whom the promises of God would come. So it's not always the way we think it's going to be. And in fact, he plays it out a little more fully in verses 10 through 13 in the Jacob and Esau example. His second example is, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger. Paul is trying to make a point here that yes, God had chosen the people of Israel, but even within that, in that ancient time, it wasn't just ethnically people who were Israelites. It was God choosing people through whom the Spirit of God would be working, who were responding to that Spirit working in them, and through them, God's promise was going to continue. And the point he's making is, look, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has two sons. They are twins, both born of the same mom, both of the same blood. Ethnically and racially, they were exactly the same. And in fact, they're twins. But God says the older will serve the younger. I choose Jacob, not Esau. In fact, before they were born, they hadn't done any good or bad. It wasn't that they had lived till about 12 or 13 when you know which kid is good, which kid is bad. And then God says, okay, Jacob's the good one. Neither of them had done anything good or bad. They hadn't been born yet. And the Lord says, I choose Jacob. It's not your goodness, your actions. It's not your ethnicity. It's even reversing the culture's values of that day and age, which firstborn sons were the higher. They were the primary ones. They were the ones through whom all promises and and, um, inheritance came. And God switches it. The older will serve the younger. Your ethnicity, your race, your birth don't matter. Your goodness, your actions, your deeds don't matter. Your culture's values, the things that you do really well that everyone in the culture celebrates doesn't matter. What matters is God and God's choosing. All salvation depends on God's acting and God's mercy, not man's deserving for any reason. In verse 15 and 16, he explains it more fully says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, God's plan of salvation, salvation being worked out, God's, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not your will or your doing. It is God who sent his son. It is God who prepares your heart, and God who gave you faith, and God who saves from beginning to end. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo said it this way, God's true spiritual people has always been based on God's gracious and sovereign call and not on ethnic identity. You could carry that out and not on your intelligence, not on your goodness, not on being born in the right country, 
It always has been based on God's gracious and sovereign call. So Paul is answering the first question, has God's word failed? And he says, no, God's word has not failed. God throughout the Old Testament into the New has continued to work out his plan of salvation according to the purpose of his will, as we saw in Ephesians 1, our creed today. So then the question gets asked directly by Paul. That's the real question at the heart of, of, of most of us, which is, if God is so sovereign and calls and chooses and all this stuff, then isn't that a little unfair? In verse 19, he states it explicitly. You will then say to me, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? The question is basically this. If God chooses Jacob and not Esau before they are even born, then how can God hold Esau accountable for his life? How can God judge Esau? It's not his fault he wasn't chosen. And we think the same thing. How can God hold us responsible? Who does he think he is? God? Well, that's Paul's actual answer. <laughs> he doesn't give us the answer he wants, so that we want, the one that kind of explains it out. Instead, he reverses it. He throws it back at us. Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Many of you know the story of Job. It's the story in the Old Testament of a man who was great and powerful but had everything stripped away. His family was killed. His uh, savings, all of his wealth was taken away. His health was stripped away. Over the course of the book of Job, he's got all these uh, friends who are trying to tell him, Job, you must have done something wrong. That's why God has done this to you. Job won't do that, but then towards the end, he starts to question God. God is silent until chapter 38. And then God has this famous line in chapter 38, towards the end of Job, when it says, the Lord answered Job and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he goes on to say, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know. You, must have been, you were there, right? You were helping us lay down the foundations of creation. You were there spinning the stars into place, right? You were there, Job? I can't remember. I, you must have been there. There was three of us. You must have, it's not a trinity. It's a quadrilaterally or something like that. I'm sure you were there. You must remember. Tell me about it, Job. Tell me all the, the depths of the, uh, of the sea. You know them, right? You saw that calf that was born on that mountain 10,000 miles from where you live. You saw it, right? Because I just saw it. Weren't you there when it all began? Weren't you there? Aren't you the one controlling it all, Job? Tell me, Job. You got it figured out. How does it all work? And thousands of years later, we're still trying to figure out what this black hole thing is. Like, I don't know. It's this theories. We're blown away by the depths of creation at the micro level and the macro level God says, who are you? And then Paul gives us a line that is really hard for us to hear. So I'm just going to read it. What if God, 
desiring to show his mercy and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If you've not read Romans 9, 10, and 11, my guess is you've glossed over it if you've read Romans. If you've not sit in this for a little bit, don't gloss over it. Let it sit over you. Wrestle with it. Now, Paul words this as a hypothetical. What if, God? So on one level, we're not meant to understand necessarily that this is exactly how it plays out. However, there's enough in the rest of the chapter to suggest that Paul is saying, so what if this is how it works out? Ultimately, the question is, who are you? And who is your God? This is hard for us. Why is this so hard for us? Because we assume a lot of things. We assume, for instance, first, our autonomy. This is why it's hard to to think of God in these terms. Because we assume our autonomy, our self-sufficiency, our freedom of choice. And on some level, that's just natural. That's human, okay? It's how we all operate. We make choices all day long. I got up, I made the coffee, I drank the coffee, I got myself dressed. These were all choices and actions I did. So my autonomy, my freedom of choice is a natural part of who we are. But as Americans, and we've talked about this, we, we throw a little bit more on top of that. We have this sense that radical individualistic liberty is the highest good. And so it must be God's highest good too. So anything that constrains my individual freedoms must not really be good. It can't really be God. But autonomy, in the way that we perceive of it, is not a biblical thing. It's not a God thing. It is an American and a human thing. But as I mentioned earlier, the root of all sin is essentially autonomy. It's doing what I want without regard for God. It's acting as God in my own life. At the root of the problem or issue that people have with saving faith, believing in God savingly, is that you ultimately need to be dependent on God. You cannot maintain your independence and have saving faith. To trust in the cross is to suggest you need God. You are a sinner, you cannot save yourself. The reason why God's sovereignty is so hard for us is first, because we assume our autonomy. The second is because we assume things about God's nature. We think God should act as we think he should act. Most of us, Christians or not, settle for a worldview, a philosophy, a theology that fits our feelings, our experience, and our cultural situation. But most of us do not have a worldview with philosophical integrity. What do I mean by that? If you played out most people's worldviews, there will be contradictions, holes, and a lot of hypocrisy. Things they cannot uh, attune for, or ways they act in one situation that are not similar in another. As an example, I've heard people say, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering, and they'll identify a type of suffering. So on one level, they're holding God 
to a sense of justice that needs a belief in God in order to hold him to that justice. And on another level, they don't come up with an answer themselves. The answer of secular humanism is there is no reason. It's all meaningless and pointless, so get over it. Others will suggest, well, I like to think of God as loving, accepting of all, not a judge. God's not a judge. He accepts all. But the problem with this is that very viewpoint on God makes it impossible to declare anything wrong. You actually have no inherent basis for suggesting that what somebody does, even even something horrible, is wrong. It's just you think it's wrong. But there's not an absolute, there's not a truth, there's not a God that holds them accountable. Most of us do not do the hard work that's necessary to seek God and understand him as he has revealed himself. That's why we go to the scriptures every week. That's why you should read the Bible. It's why you should gather as the people of God, learning stuff, listening to things, reading other books. Try to understand how God has revealed himself in scripture and across history. Cultivate a whole Bible, a whole history view of God. And of course, then the challenge is even once you do that, it's we struggle to submit to and believe in this God because we want him to match our feelings, our culture, our time. We struggle with the sovereignty of God because of our need for autonomy, our assumptions about the nature of God, and thirdly, because we assume the sufficiency of our own brilliance. Here's what we think. For something to be true about God or about life or his plan of salvation, I must be able to comprehend it or prove it. This is what is called the illusory superiority idea. Illusory illusory superiority is is explained this way. Um, Most people think of themselves as better than other people on some level. So you assume you're in the upper half in a number of areas. So one study was done of kids. They took kids and put them in a room where they had to match fish, and they said in another room is another kid that's also matching fish and you're competing against them. If you win, you'll go on to the next round, and the winner of the whole thing gets all this candy. So at the end of the round, the kid kind of was wrestling through matching the fish, and they, they said to the kid, how do you think you did? 80% of the kids were certain they had beat the kid in the other room who they hadn't even watched. But they were certain they were better than that other kid. An older study that's over 30 years old suggested that American drivers, 88% of them, think they are a better driver than average. 38% of you are completely wrong. Sixty-five percent of Americans think they are above average in intelligence. Doesn't work. And of course, the famous one, 94% of college professors think they are above average lecturers at their university. We all disregard our own limits. God's reasons for anything must be something I can imagine. And part of this has to do with the way that we have to do things comparatively, right? Even the way that we take anthropomorphisms, we we think of God as a boss or a parent 
or a ruler like a king. And so it has to fit in a category that we can manage. J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, wrote, because we are limited and weak, we imagine that at some points God is too and find it hard to believe that he is not. We think of God as too much like what we are. But if, hypothetically, Christianity is right, if the Bible is true, if the historic reading on God is right in Christianity, if God is an all-powerful, all-knowing, creator, judge, and Lord of the universe, isn't it at least possible, maybe even plausible, that he would design things, ordain things, do things in your life and in the world for reasons you had never thought of or couldn't even understand if they were explained to you. And this becomes especially the case when we get to the crux of what's at issue here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and all of Romans. It's the both and of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's what it's saying. First, God is sovereign. God is ruling, working out, he has mercy, he hardens, he is Lord of all. And human responsibility. We accept the gospel or we reject God. We obey or we harden our own hearts. When it comes to salvation, both things are laid out side by side in Romans. God is sovereign. Romans 9.16 says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not what you do, it's not your desires, it's not your actions, it is God who saves you. It depends on God who has mercy. And in the very next breath, essentially, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So which is it? Is it God who saves or we who believe? Paul answers, yes. God is completely sovereign, predestining Lord of creation and salvation, and you and I are responsible, accountable for our actions and choice. Now, slight easy way out of this is we're meant to live from human perspective. And the human perspective is you must respond. We can't know the purposes of God. We get glimpses of the purposes of God, but we can't know them. We don't live on the basis of God's perspective, we live on the basis of ours, and we trust and rely on God's. So this stuff that we're talking about this morning, and Romans 9 is pretty, pretty heavy. It's actually not new to CCV. If you've been here for a year or seven years, you've heard us talking about the lordship of God, about our idols of our heart, the things that we worship instead of God, even about God's grace and the necessity of God's grace and salvation, all of which is dependent on the sovereignty of God, not on the autonomy of man. I remember going through my own version of a theodicy on these ideas when I was in college. So I'd grown up as a Christian kid, but somewhere in college I began thinking and then having conversations with friends about my own salvation, and the question was this, did I choose God or did God choose me? 
And while on many levels it felt like I chose God, I acknowledged him, I believed in him, I opened the Bible. But then I thought about the other things that I couldn't control, like being born, being born in America, being born in a family that were, was Christian that took me to church, going to a church that was pretty good, having friends who were Christians, being in a school where there was things like Young Life or at a church that had a youth leader, going off to a Young Life camp and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and connecting with the speaker, liking the speaker, not hating the speaker. Recognizing that even my next breath I can't control. And I began to be hit by the weight of God's sovereignty. In seminary, a couple years after college, I began reading Luther and listening to sermons by John Piper and reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God and another book by him. Sarah and I listened through J, uh, John Piper's sermons on Romans. So we're covering Romans in eight weeks. John Piper covers Romans in 90s and 2000s in about 200 weeks. Go listen, it's light listening. But I remember in the midst of it being overwhelmed because I was grasping for the first time a whole Bible theology. Not one where I interpreted God one way as I was reading this passage and contradictorily in another passage, but a God that was across Genesis to Revelation and was across human history and was across my life. And God became bigger and I was ultimately overwhelmed by the greatness of God. I'm not gonna read it, but the end of Romans 11 is this section where Paul is just going off about how amazing and mind-blowing God is. That's how he finishes this section, because he realizes this is profound stuff. But it's not meant to just be a philosophical, theological treatise. It's ultimately meant to have an effect on you and your life. I found that as I understood this more and more, I began to actually trust God more deeply. I trusted God's faithfulness and his goodness. I didn't just do that inherently, it was because I was engaging this stuff. And looking at things like Psalm 139, where David, the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? I can't leave you, God, you know where I am at all times. Every one of my days, you know, even before one of them came into being. Oh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is saying not only is God Lord who, who is over everything, he also knows you. He's with you. He loves you. He cares about you. When you understand God's faithfulness and goodness, it's much easier to trust his sovereignty his divine purposes that you can't understand. And I've found, as I've struggled in life or dealt with suffering and loss, it's God's sovereignty that gives me hope. In Romans 8, it talks about our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. As I've struggled in sin and failure in my own life, it's the hand of God over all things that gives me hope and assurance. Philippians 1.6 says, He, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Not, God began a good work, you need to carry it on, and then maybe you'll make it. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Amen.
And regardless of what happens in life, I don't need to be afraid. Because no matter what happens in my body, in my relationships, in America, in this world, I am confident of this. God wins. God wins. God wins. The bigger your God, the more you can rest. The smaller your God, the more you need to strive and worry. There are promises in Romans 3 through 8. In Romans 8 alone, it's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of our sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and nothing at all can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If your God is not big enough, you need to worry about whether those things are true. But if your God is big enough, then these things are true. Your salvation is secure. If he is the sovereign Lord of the universe over all things, including your life, then no matter what happens, you have nothing to fear. Let's pray. God, in this world, we struggle with our own sinfulness, we struggle with doubts, with worry and anxiety and fear and insecurities. You are a God who is big, and we can't fathom it. Give us eyes to see and a willingness to plumb the depths of how high and wide and deep and great is the love of God for us. And give us that hope and assurance that can only come from you. In whose name we pray. Amen.